Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast, Sport and Life. Thank you for hitting on the button. Looking forward to this one today with a distinguished, highly respected local beat journalist, effectively sports journalist, John Palmer, who has covered Cheltenham Town for many a decade, I believe. I'm not trying to age the guy, but he's done it for quite a while. He's been a huge resource to me in terms of plugging myself into Cheltenham and the local area in sport and getting to know different people and different information about people as well. He's been a font of knowledge and be fantastic to get his take on not only Cheltenham Town, but all the local sports scenes and talk about life, I suppose, in a fairly rare sense of being a beat sports reporter in the UK. Predominantly, he's covering Cheltenham Town, League Two Football Club, although he is across all the local sport working for Gloucestershire Live. And he's also a lecturer as well at um, the University of Gloucestershire in Cheltenham in journalism. So it'll be fascinating to get his take on where the industry is going because it's very fractured, very fragmented, lots of concern at where income is coming in journalism with the advertising model kind of blown apart by the internet. So great to get his take on some of that stuff and also the potential for Cheltenham Town to grow maybe from League Two. He's watched it over many times come out of non-league. So it'll be interesting to see his sense of, of where it might go. And also particularly as well, maybe the coronavirus, talking about that and the effect on lower league football could be huge because lower league football clubs in England, unlike the Premier League clubs, so reliant on advertising and revenue that way. Wanted to give a quick word to the sponsors as well as ever. Good team, Jason Briggs and the guys at Bangor Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. So Jason and those guys not only sell Bang & Olufsen in the courtyard in Montpellier in Cheltenham in a beautiful uh, tourist district, historic part of the um, of the town with loads of great cafes and restaurants around there. It's a nice place to pop in even if you're just passing out curiosity. They've got all the Bang & Olufsen historic kind of stereos and, and all that audio equipment, but also specialise in bringing other equipment from other brands through their company, Serene AV, to tailor things like home cinemas or even just basic home entertainment systems for any budget and they'll really be honest and, and candid about kind of what you have what your resources are what you want and try and tailor something for you so they're good boys a good team and we'll crack on now with the podcast at john palmer john palmer how are you sir i'm very well thanks yeah, yeah good good you just do an intro but now i've got this <laughs> this lofty sponsorship from jason briggs and the co that i have to do a little <laughs> intro so we could just crack straight into it but good to see you because you've you got a you got a lecture coming up at eleven. Is a le- yeah, lecture too right. formal or is it? Um, it's, it's, it's class. A, it's, it's a news day. I'll call it today. So some of our students are going to the races to report on that. Oh, cool! And we'll have people in the newsroom producing live blogging, uh, yeah. audio content. So it'd be quite an exciting day. First day of the festival is always a good buzz. Yeah, it is. It's a. It's funny. There's a guy at the school actually who's he knows the groundsman there and he's been obsessing about the ground for ages and, and putting bets on. But he's actually got the wrong, he's got the wrong bet. So it's it's soft <laughs> soft ground, which is but like racing crowd are different. Aren't they? They're so esoteric about how they approach it but he's going for four days and he's got two kids but he's, he's got like a little pass I think from his wife where he goes out for four days solid he said and in her face he said oh, I'd rather go to Cheltenham for a week than go to Mauritius or something and she was looking at him like what I think I'd rather go to Mauritius but it is the fervour it's the odd part of living here isn't it that, that football takes a back seat because we're both effectively football guys but it's um, you have to you have to make do with with it not being the biggest show in town yeah I think I, I'm not a massive racing fan in terms of I don't know a massive amount about the sport but growing up in Cheltenham I love the, the feel around the place when it's on. Has it always been massive? Because you were yeah. born in 79, has it always been that yeah. big? It's always been massive, but it went from three days to four yeah. um, in the, I think, mid-2000s. So it, became, it used to be just Tuesday to Thursday. Mm-hmm. Gold Cup was on Thursday. And there is talk now about making it a five-day, having yeah. an extra day on a Saturday. 
She it? can't take kids, can you? That's the only thing. I don't know whether they'd let kids in anyway, but it's. I think it's. It's a. It, Irish invasion, isn't it? That's what. That's what I yeah. think about the festival. Yeah. Uh, there, there are other days. I think the New Year's one is more family, and obviously you get some families that go. But it's. I think it's a. A group of mates, isn't it? And and big gatherings and people yeah. haven't seen each other for a while. It's like an annual pilgrimage. Yeah, people save save thousands of pounds to come and blow on, on bets, which is incredible, isn't yeah. it? Really, hundred million to the economy in Cheltenham. Apparently, is that's it? the figure they've estimated. Yeah, which is wow. incredible. Yeah, I know even the local Indian restaurant because I live pretty near the centre of town. He says that the owner of the, the shop says that the owner of the restaurant says that it pretty much keeps them going the rest of the year with the money. Yeah. People sort of will put five hundred quid down just to reserve a table. Like, kind of, yeah. everyone just goes a bit. A bit sort of, uh, I guess, uh, loopy that week in terms yeah. of just splashing cash. If you drive through town in the evening of a race day, it's just, it's just people spilling out into the streets. You know, every, yeah. Everything is rammed, whereas some, you know, normally it's quite a quiet town. There's always something going on in Cheltenham, but normally it's a fairly quiet town, isn't it? It's funny, yeah, and it's funny those tensions, isn't it, being in a place like Cheltenham. Because I went to, I was talking to you earlier, having a coffee at Loughborough University, and, and there there was a real town college, town university tension and I actually did a documentary when I went to the States because I went to do my master's in journalism in a place called Athens, Ohio. It was very similar. It had been a university town since the 1800s, which was rare in the States. But they had these people who were locals, but they kind of relied on the university for income. And like, like Cheltenham relies on the races for income. But there's that tension of what do the students do or what do the, the race goers go here? It's because some people are making money out of renting their houses out, but other people are you know, worried about people peeing in the streets at three in the morning yeah. and stuff. I've done that before. I've rented my house out during race. Oh, you say uh, in the street at three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Never done that. But yeah. I think most people in Cheltenham are willing to put up with it, even though you get stuck in traffic a few times. I think it's it brings a lot more good than bad. Yeah. You know, just it does keep a lot of businesses going, as you said. So it puts it on the map as well, doesn't it? In the sense of people might it resonant name recognition, so you might think of Cheltenham and go back for a weekend with your wife or, or whatever it might be. But um, yeah, it was interesting. We said it's going ahead because we were just chatting, and I was actually terrifying myself this morning. On a, morning off reading about the coronavirus in Italy and the sort of the sort of social media stuff that's coming out we think it's it's happened just in time but it it does seem the severity of the coronavirus in Italy with the elderly in particular that that maybe things will get locked down in sporting events yeah I remember the year where there's foot and mouth I think it was 2001 it was completely cancelled yeah that year there was one year where they lost a day to high winds they had to mm. cancel the day's racing but they managed to catch up later in the week so it has been affected before but if it had been completely cancelled now it would have been a huge blow. Obviously, they would have had to respect the decision if it was the best, yeah. in the best interest of people's health. But thankfully, it's going ahead. And it's not too much of an international idea as people travelling here. There's not, hopefully, too many cases of coronavirus relative to, to Italy that maybe it's not going to be too much of a problem. There's no people coming from, from a far, farther afield. Yeah, vast majority will be Irish and English. I think there's a few French horses coming over as well, but I think mm. they, they feel like it's just about doable, which is obviously great news for everyone in Cheltenham. It's, it's, yeah, it definitely is the finance of people. Of, and particularly, I was thinking about lower league football as well. On Sky Sports News yesterday, we had a guy called Kieran Maguire, who's a financial expert, I believe, at John Moore's University Football Finance. And he was saying that if they have to play games behind closed doors, for the Premier League, they can probably sustain that because a lot of their revenue comes from TV money and sponsorship, advertising, whatever it might be. But endorsements, he said that for the lower league clubs, it's more serious. So, I mean, I suppose you have to be concerned from a Cheltenham Town perspective, don't we, about, about that potentially if they had to play the last few games behind closed doors. Yeah, Charlton Town run it very sensibly, so they, they rely on the ticket income completely, really. Obviously, mm. they get a bit of money from the Football League, a bit of TV money, a bit of sponsorship money, but they spend what they generate mainly through season tickets and ticket sales. So if they had to play, even if, even if one Saturday game gets cancelled, it gets rearranged from a Tuesday night, which has happened a few times this year, that, that does affect them financially. Yeah. So if they were to lose... Because people don't got as many people on a Tuesday. Nowhere near as many will yeah. make the trip. So obviously, less young youngsters come and, and less travelling fans 
particularly if it's a long trip. So Cheltenham really would struggle if they've got nobody pumping millions of pounds in, have they? So yeah, it's well run. But in cases like this, they, they really do rely on that regular income. They have to go through a few months during the summer where they've got nothing coming in in terms of ticket mm. sales, just the season ticket sales and the early sales of that. But yeah, it's very worrying. Hopefully it won't, won't come to it. But you know, I know they're, they're obviously planning. In the, well, in it, the, it might also not qualify. It might be a limit of 5,000, which would actually work all right for Charlton, wouldn't it? If they're under, generally under 5,000 that they may yeah. be okay from in terms of a mass gathering. Yeah, they'd love to get to 5,000. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. So averaging around 3,000 at the moment. So. Yeah. That won't be an issue if that's the... If yeah, it's only time, the, only time you're hoping not to be defined as a mass <laughs> gathering in terms of your, your attendance. We hope, hope for Charlton, but obviously hope everyone keeps safe and whatever the best course of action, we, we hope it works out. And season ticket holders, there's another dynamic to that as well, whether they'll get reimbursed by football clubs if it, if it does come to behind, behind closed doors because rugby games have been postponed in the Six Nations. So how about you? How long have you we've tried to work it out you've been reporting on Charlton Town for now? I said decades in my intro, <laughs> but it's, well, it's kind of is decades, isn't yeah. it? Um, I started sort of in a voluntary capacity in the late 90s, but I've been full-time reporter for Charlton Town, taking away one year where I worked for the club since, yeah. since 2005. And were so, you a fan as a kid? Yeah, grew up as a fan. And how, how's that been, being a fan and being close to it? Well, my dad started taking me away. I've got four sisters, and I think, I mean, I, I know that girls can like football but I think my dad wanted a son so he could take me to football um, <laughs> none of my sisters were into football so he started taking me at a young age really got into it I'd say early teens started yeah. going home and away and Chatham were in the Southern Prem at that time and I, all I wanted to do really as a fan was see them get back into what is now the National League Yeah, nobody had ever really dreamt of getting into the Football League but they obviously did that in 99 with Michael Duff scoring the winning goal I know what a story that is isn't it? Uh, the prodigal son's back now yeah. as well isn't he yeah. so it's, it's a nice little bit of you know quite poetic but I, I never thought that would happen I never thought I'd see Cheltenham play in the Football League so to be now reporting on them in their 20th season in the Football League has been incredible so, so it still it still feels a special thing yeah I, I mean if Cheltenham get into League 1 this season it's brilliant that they're they're challenging it would be an incredible achievement, but in my opinion, just to be in League Two is a, is a decent achievement for so, a so, of the history. So, you, so you, that was a bigger golf to come from, I guess, historically we've called the conference up to League Two. or What was it called at the time? It's probably called something different. When Sheltman got into it, it was Nationwide Division Three. Nationwide Division yeah. Three. So, when the, but in the, effectively the fourth tier of English football, that gap you feel was psychologically much bigger than when they went to League One. Because they, they have been to League One a couple of times. Yeah, they? they've had two spells, one of one season and one of three seasons, but... When Cheltenham first got promoted with that Duff goal, they were part-time. Yeah. And only one club in the, I think one or two clubs in the conference were full-time then. So it was a massive transition going forward. Yeah, because a few players that actually decided not to go professional yeah. at that point because they had, had other careers. Yeah, that, that must have been a really difficult decision. There was a few that were in their early 30s, had good jobs, and they just had to say, sorry, but we'll go and play for another co- good conference club. So a lot of the players were willing to give up their jobs or if they had flexible hours and that sort of thing, or they had trades that they could take a step out of for a few years and... Mm. It was quite a brave decision, but Cheltenham went into the league. A lot of the players gave up their jobs. Uh, everything became full-time, so they were training every day instead of just a couple of nights a week. Yeah. And it was all about really getting there. And But straight away, with Steve Cottrell in charge, they started challenging to get into League One again. <laughs> if he had, he had, um, Is that ga- do you think that gap's bigger from the conference to League Two than, than League Two to League One, or how do you, how do you see it? So there's think, some huge clubs in League One still, aren't there? Yeah, I think the gap... Between the, I think the National League's improved massively. There's a lot more full-time teams in there now, and I think there's mm. a lot of teams up and coming ready to get into the Football League that have invested a lot of money. League 2 to League 1, I do think it's still a huge gap. If you look at some of the clubs, Tranmere went up twice in a row and yeah. struggling in, in League 1. And you've got teams like Sunderland, Ipswich. You know, for Cheltenham, yeah. for Cheltenham in, in the mid-2000s, they were playing against teams like Leicester, Forest, Leeds. Yeah. So that you, you always get a few big boys that have dropped down yeah. from the Championship, and then you get clubs like 
you know, you get the smaller clubs that are just happy to be in there. Crowds of three thousand. We're talking about it. You still marvel, don't you? With grown men, you, you said you just turned forty. Not to give it away, <laughs> and I'm a couple of years younger than you, but you still you still marvel at how many football teams there are in in England, don't you? It's incredible yeah. how much depth there is and how many how many footballers there are. I think in most countries you get one top division, maybe one professional division underneath it, and then it goes to yeah. semi-professional very quickly. But the depth we've got in England with the 91, unfortunately, because of Bury, mm. professional clubs in the in the league, in the Premier League. And then I think there's there's quite a few full-time clubs, even in National League, North and South level. So mm. it's it really is... I know a lot of clubs are struggling. I wonder how they can sustain that, don't you, in terms of ticket sales? Yeah. Even in the League 2, aren't they? We've seen, we've seen Bury go, we've seen Macclesfield struggling, Oldham... Bolton have been through absolute yeah. hell. So it's, it's not a normal business because you know they always stretch themselves, don't they? That's the problem because yeah. you're so competitive in, in every division that you're always trying to spend a little bit more on wages than a, than a regular business would. Yeah, I think the one thing you have to have is a fan base. And Cheltenham have got a, a, a core mm. of around two and a half to 3,000 that will come however they're doing. And mm. there, there are a lot more people that take an interest. So when they got to Wembley in 98, they took 18,000. They've been to Millennium Stadium a couple of times and took around 15,000. It's amazing. So there is that potential of people that will come along if you know if, if there's a really big game if they top them away in the FA Cup 5,000 went made the trip yeah it's just trying to gradually get some more of those people to come on a more regular yeah, basis yeah what do you, do you think it's distractions from other things in this part of the world yeah we were talking about it earlier I think yeah. Chapman is a, it's still establishing itself as a football town you know it's not really traditionally been a football town there's always a lot including the racing or the festivals yeah Gloucester rugby Gloucester rugby so. a major sort of almost you could see it as a competitor for, for fans because yeah some people will go and watch both. Or, or it seems to have, we have Swindon Town fans here, don't we? And Aston, yeah, Aston Villa fans. Midlands clubs, yeah. Brist, Bristol City as well. It's big, big draws. And... Yeah. So because it, I think staying in the league was vital. So when Chatham dropped out of the league for one year, it was so vital they got back in because having a football league club is, is great for the town. I think it, it's gradually building and getting someone like Duff back, yeah. who had such a good time as a player and knows what it's all about, I think was just a genius appointment. Do you think just, could you just sense that he just knows it intuitively inside and out and that means, makes a difference? I think he he's Chelsea's best ever youth product. So he came through, he played at all the levels, and I think he's 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 had that Premier League experience. I think he just understands how to deal with players. Man management is is unbelievable. Yeah, and he's just a lot of what he's done is is no nonsense common sense. He's just made common sense decisions, but he's got that bit of, bit of magic speak, as well. Speaking to Will Boyle, it seems that he's very transparent with people and, and up front. Which do you think that is that key? Can you sense that sort of honesty when you when you go to the training ground regularly? Just that people know where they stand. Yeah, exactly that. I don't. I think everybody knows exactly what they what they need to do. He's one of the best things he's done is there's nobody sulking about not being in the team. Every, he's managed to keep everyone happy and really sort of team ethic rather than individual glory. Mm. And I think he's that Premier League experience and deal, and seeing how Sean Dyche, who he's learnt a lot from, deals with sort of highly paid young mm. millionaires, I think has actually helped him and he, but I think he understands what Leeds two players are all about and it's just he, he had a bit of a sticky start, didn't he? It took yeah. him a while to get Took him a while to get that Nine first win. Nine or ten win. games, was it? Yeah. But, you know, what he did last season to turn it round and end up 16th was brilliant. But I think even still, what he's done this season has still been a real Well, he said he had, to, he had to sort of throw his philosophies out the window when he first came because he was trying to play a certain style and then realised yeah. he had to adapt to the, the situation at hand. But then he has seemingly evolved more attractive, easy on the eye style this season. Yeah, I think it took him about just over a month to, to change the 3 5 2. It was a leasing.com trophy game it was Checker Trade Trophy last mm. season against Arsenal where he, he first used a back three yeah. so 3-5-2 Ben Tozo who's just got injured moved into the middle of the back three when he, he'd been struggling a little bit in midfield and since that game which shut them 1-6-2 they've, they've used that formation pretty much every game and it's just really suits the way they want to play it really suits the players they've got and it's been yeah the, the standard of football this season particularly at home 
on a really good pitch. Mm. It's been some of the best Cheltenham producing years. Been down a few times, and I suppose the, the guy who seems to really suit wing back is Chris Hussey. Seems yeah. a great, great player. Absolutely. I don't know why he's playing at League Two. I think he's had a few injury problems over the years, but mm. he's been, you know, he's, he's a cut above. And if, if Cheltenham were to go up, he'd be one of the ones you'd have no worries about. Would be fine yeah. in League One. Strong and athletic. He's got a great sort of power, powerful shot in him as well. Yeah. Isn't he? Technical Cross. ability is. Yes, I, I wrote a piece last week. I think he's Cheltenham's best left-footed technician since Grant McCann, who was brilliant really? player for Cheltenham and you know was now manager of Hull. Yeah, and I think Hussey's the best left foot I've seen since McCann. Yeah. What's, so what, what? What's it? Um, what's it been like for you being a fan and being close to it? Because they say never meet your heroes. Is it? <laughs> is it been strange? Because I, I worked for a little bit at MUTV, and obviously you're working for independent media now. But I know you've worked for the club as well at different stages. Yeah. Do you feel ever a kind of conflict? When I was at MUTV, it was almost like state media. It had to be, it was very kind of, and that was 2005. So I guess now with the internet, you probably have to be a bit more balanced in their assessment because fans, it turns out, are quite critical. So they want, yeah. want a balance rather than you sort of being a, being a kind of, um, I guess, a, a sort of a sounding post for the club. When, when I got given the job, my editor at the time, his name was Ian Mean, he said, you're not just here to be a PR machine for the club. You've got to report what's actually going mm. on. So, and I think I've always tried to do that. I think I've, I am a fan and I think everyone knows that, but I do try and be balanced. So I want the club to do well, but if they, if I feel that they need a bit of criticism or if I need to hold somebody to account, I will try and do that. But obviously I also want to be supportive. Yeah. And for me, it's much better if things are going well, but been through some relegations, some promotions, some great times, but I think I've tried to, even though I am a fan, I've tried to report objectively um, and not not let myself get to you know you won't see me celebrating goals in the press box or anything like that <laughs> so I've stopped of taking that out of my game it's very it's it's very competitive at that level isn't it it's fine margins and even Cheltenham are either winning games by a single goal or losing them sometimes or you know nil nil draw at the weekend what's the difference over that spell do you think in terms of a successful club at that level versus not winning the is there something you can identify the variables when it's when it's going well yeah I think Cheltenham Cheltenham's key to success this season has been when they've played well they've they've blown teams away they've they've had a few yeah. fours and a few threes. But when they've not been particularly good, which they weren't on Saturday, they're still well organised enough and together enough to get a point. Yeah. So they've they've only lost six this season, um, which is you know at this stage of the season, ten to go is really they let very few goals in. Um, so they've got a structure. So even when they're not really using the ball as well as they maybe would like mm. to, they still are very difficult to break down. So nil nil against Port Vale at home was slightly frustrating, but they've just beaten Northampton and Colchester in the previous two games so 7 out of 9 against the 3 teams directly below them is actually quite a decent mm. return Yeah. so they're just when they're at their best they're really good when they're not at their best they more often than not come out with at least a point or sometimes they've nicked games 1-0 yeah. where they haven't played well Is it about tactics at that level and, and skill and individual players or is it more about morale and team spirit from what you've seen down the, down the years? It's much more about togetherness and organisation because Cheltenham have had some really talented players over the years but they've been relegated or they've, they've struggled because mm. they're not they're just playing their own game. You know, there's not the structure that, that Duff's brought in. Yeah. So I think that's what, he, even when they had Moisa for a year, they, they finished uh, in the lower reaches of League 2 and he was he was unbelievable. So. And how's it like dealing with the club? Because they must know, I guess, that you're a fan as well, but you're trying to be neutral. Is it is it a tricky balance to strike sometimes with the, the owners and the board? And Yeah, I think they, they, they don't really ever have a problem with in terms of the the tone of what I write. It's more sometimes I'll find stuff out that they'd rather keep quiet. Oh, Obviously, okay. that's my job. I've got to sometimes tell fans something that they don't already know. So there's sometimes that balancing act between if the club are trying to sign a player and I get wind of it, I will I will discuss it with them mm. and I will make sure that I'm not going to scupper any deals and, yeah. and buy my time over it. But obviously I, I want to get out first when the time is right. We've had quite a few situations like that. Yeah, the closeness you have to the club is, is really impressive as well. Because I remember when I phoned into work because you were saying that Gary Johnson, do you remember when he 
didn't leave the first time, but there were crisis meetings, and you yeah. seemed it seemed that you were completely across it. What was what was happening? You were kind of there at the ground at the time. Yeah, they lost one nil to Carlisle on Saturday, and I thought he was going to be sacked. I, but I was actually in the press box. Everyone else had gone. I was up in the press box on my own, and I al- almost saw it unfolding with my own eyes. He got summoned up to the boardroom. Wow. Um, but that's um, the thing at a smaller club you're so close together yeah. structurally within the building that you can see these things so I knew it was happening um, eventually he was sacked on the Tuesday after a, a draw at Macclesfield but I, I knew that it was he was on the verge um, Gary Johnson did an absolutely brilliant job in 2015-16 to get 101 points in the National League but then mm. first two and a bit seasons in the league it was, it, was, it was a struggle Yeah, and I think Duff's now showing that you know it can be done in League 2 and Cheltenham Budget wise and also fan base wise, they shouldn't be struggling. Me too. Really. Want to be a younger man as well because it, it's quite a relentless schedule, isn't it? That perhaps that that's in Michael's favour. Yeah, he's he's about forty two, I think. Duff. Mm. Um, so he's not really young for a manager, but he's young in managerial terms because he's done the twenty threes at Burnley and yeah, he's is is it's his first senior job and he has got that unbelievable hunger. I think he works hard. He's got a head of recruitment and a, and a Mickey Moore, a scout who goes out and watches a lot of games. But I know Michael goes and watched he watched two games last week. Um, yeah. On his way to watch the Red Arrows for a day. I don't know if you saw that, but he, he spent the day with the Red Arrows on. Was Tuesday. that Bryce Norton? Is it? Or? It was up in Lincoln. Oh, he okay. Went up in Lincoln, and his dad's his dad was in the RAF, so he's yeah. probably quite close to to his family. But he he went to learn about leadership and teamwork and all that sort of stuff. But I think he he really is driven, and you know Shane, don't you? Yes, I do. His brother, he's yeah, also unbelievably driven. They've they've got a sister called Kerry, who's also unbelievably. <laughs> they're like the, ne- the Nevilles of Cheltenham, they are, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're just uh, they've they've all got a really good attitude and work ethic as a family. I think really good. Yeah, good. Um, good yeah, I had because sh- I shared on the podcast last year. And he was talking about that that epiphany moment he had when he tried to make it as a professional footballer and did make it as a professional footballer. Made the decision to show up, and he's almost employing now in the second podcast to do the same psychology of his property development and sort of like he coaches other people but coaches himself as well you know not to slack off to make the phone call to, to do the sort of site visit or whatever so he's he is um, very positive energy but it's interesting that the Duffs one thing because they had that sort of peripatetic childhood a bit like mine but they've really chosen Cheltenham as a place to go I mean I suppose that endears him to the local people doesn't it as well that the Duffs like this part of the world and committed to it yeah I think he he his wife is from Cheltenham as well. He met his wife through a Cheltenham Town community event. Mm. Um, I think it's at Edwards School. So they, he's obviously got that link with the town. He isn't actually from the town, but I think now his family is settled in the town. Is is yeah? Brother. I think he grew up sort of latterly in just in Burford, which is only down the road, yeah. isn't it? But yeah, Shane was working in the Little Chef Burford the night Michael Duff scored that goal in to get Cheltenham into the football league. So uh, it's not there anymore. The Little Chef is it? No, it's a Starbucks. Now. Starbucks. Yeah, that's what we were saying <laughs> the other day. Maybe we'll get maybe get a job there. Go back for a romantic visit again. But it's. <laughs> It's 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 a strange strange beat, isn't it, in terms of the up and downs of, of being a, a a kind of local reporter? Did you, were you ever tempted to go national and move somewhere else, and or was it always committed to to following the team? I was tempted, and I've been offered a couple of jobs at media jobs at bigger clubs or mm. newspaper jobs that would have taken me elsewhere around the country. But I've I just love Cheltenham, yeah. and I managed to get a promotion to sports editor for three years before I started at the university. So I've Felt like I was progressing yeah. from a trainee reporter to a chief football writer to a this sports is it editor. Called Gloucestershire Live now, isn't yeah. it? I was sports editor of Gloucestershire Live and, and the two daily papers, which are now weekly, Gloucestershire Echo and the Gloucester Citizen. So that was great being sports editor in my hometown papers. Yeah, I know. So are you still working there, though? You still? Yeah. Since I started the university, I'm now just do Cheltenham Town for them, really. Uh, okay. A um, bit, of, bit of local football, but main focus on Cheltenham Town. And then Rob Isles, who's the head of sport now, is the Gloucester rugby guy. So were you covering Gloucester Rugby before then? Were you? I've never editor? reported 
Um, regularly on Gloucester Rugby, we've always had a dedicated Gloucester Rugby reporter, so I've been always been more football, yeah. and we had a racing specialist. There's a lot of pressure that you've got to get it right, haven't you, with the rug- rugby yeah. crowd around here? I wouldn't fancy myself to write about racing. I've played a bit of rugby, and I know a bit about rugby, but I think racing I'd struggle with, and we always had a, a specialist racing writer, which was a massive help. It's really funny, because I started my journalism in the States, and my first job really was working for a local paper. I was covering high school basketball, which... I had a guy who was a lovely guy, but an alcoholic editor at the time, but he'd take out pool quotes. It'd be incendiary to local, but high school sport was massive, so I'd get in trouble sometimes. If someone say, oh, you said this about my son BJ, or whatever. You'd be like, oh, okay, sorry, I didn't mean it. It was like a tiny part of an article. He made a massive headline or something. So it was, it was interesting, but it was um, covering other sports, because I didn't really, wasn't that familiar with basketball. I'd watched the NBA in the 90s and stuff and enjoyed it and played a little bit, but, but it was, I found it sometimes easier to follow a sport that I wasn't that knowledgeable about or and also to interview people sometimes is easier because you're genuinely curious whereas sometimes with football say you've heard a lot of the answers before yeah completely agree you, I've, I've, I've t- say to the students now that you know it's good to have a specialism but be, you've got to be willing to try and hand at anything and I think when I started as a trainee sports reporter I was doing one day I'll be speaking to a disabled archer then yeah I'll be, then I'll be doing a decent football standard of football reporting then I'll be speaking to all, all any number of different sports and I, I really enjoyed that and like you said everyone's got an interesting story to tell and even if you're not an expert in that particular sport, learning about it and yeah. getting the human side of it out is a great challenge. What have you made of the transformation of journalism? Because when we came up and we were curious about it, it was just sort of TV, radio and newspapers and the internet was just kind of something that was a, a new thing that wasn't really used for, for media per se. What have you made of the, the evolution? Because it's changed so much, hasn't it, journalism yeah. and the media? It's, it's beyond all recognition. I used to turn up to games with a notepad and pen yeah. and just sit there and make a few notes record an audio interview with the manager after the game, go home at my leisure and write a piece for Monday's paper. But I'd say since late 2000s, it's very, very much live. So you've got your laptop with you, you're live blogging the game, yeah. um, using social media, live tweeting games, getting out pictures during the game, doing video interviews after the game rather than just audio. And I find it a lot more exciting. It's, sometimes it's hard to, to look in about three places at once. You're but you're also to... updating Twitter as well, are you? You're doing that yeah. whilst you're, you sort of... Copy and pasting the live blog into Twitter, is that how you do it? Um, I try and put a bit more extra information in the live blog, but I try yeah. and key moments of the game on Twitter with links to the website, try and get some pictures out. We have a photographer on the touchline sending stuff up during the game, try and look at what the fans are saying. And yeah. then after the game, it's very much interview Michael Duff, speak to a player, get the interviews out, videos, full transcripts, and then maybe some more analytical pieces for Sunday, Monday. Mm. So I, I find it a lot more exciting during the game, but sometimes you do... You are trying to look in about three places at once. At yeah. three, your phone, your laptop, and try to find out what's happening in the match. And but we all help each other out in the press box. If yeah. you miss, a, you know, I don't think I missed any goals this season. But if you miss a, a penalty shout or a, a close chance, you know, you'll help each other out and tell them what happened. Oh, still, yeah, multitasking. I remember when I was trying to do basketball, high school stuff because Eastern States, the reports were amazing. They do these things called box scores where they have all the uh, attempted shots, you know, shots made, assists, all this rebounds. You have to, I mean, unbelievable. They watched the game, right? Report, but they have to complete this stats thing as well. This sort of single local report. So that was, uh, that was absolutely intense. But it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because people, when I was at journalism college in the States, they were talking about media convergence, was a terminology, and they're saying about the internet and how papers would get consumed and, and TV and everything would come into one place. So it would all come on the internet, which sort of happened. But I almost feel that nowadays there's, all, with a, there's been a decline of local papers in the physical sense, but the, the online stuff is almost even more of a valuable resource, isn't it? Because no one else is offering offering that I still think local papers have got a huge role to play maybe not as you said not in the physical print product which 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 is struggling but I think mm. online 
during the recent floods um, and the coronavirus, and if there's any snow, everyone will go to Gloucester Live. Yeah. Everyone, you know, the, the, the numbers, the page views that that website's had over the last few months have been breaking all the records because it's still the go-to place for Gloucester news. So it's even though yeah. the paper is probably on its way out. And for Cheltenham Town Football Club as well. Yeah. For, for Cheltenham Town, I'd like to think that it's, it's the place to go f- to find stuff out that you, you can't get anywhere else. That's my, my challenge, really. I remember speaking to some sort of business people at a, a club and they've sort of affiliated to a rugby club and a football club, but they were saying that they envisaged like they would become the media source for their club, which obviously you see a lot of clubs doing with TV channels and online resources. Do you feel that people will always want, even fans, an independent source, something separate from the club? Because you've worked on both sides, haven't you? You've been yeah. a press officer at the club too. I think you need that separate that separation. I think Swindon at one point tried to ban all media and only put their own content yeah. out. And I think it's a, it's a dangerous game because people will start to think that things being hidden. I think you need... You need a journalist to yeah. to be there um, to to offer that objective opinion and and because when I was working for the club it was very much put, put positive spin on everything it was difficult because it was the season <laughs> champ got relegated oh right it's a very difficult year four <laughs> four managers the greatest relegation ever yeah. yeah so that was that was difficult you can't obviously completely try and pull the wall over the fans eyes if you're working for a club you've got to be realistic but you, there's ways you can word things you yeah know, to not be quite as uh, how did you find work working for the club? Did you find that difficult not being? Um, I did find it difficult because of the season that it was. It was it mm. was a season that started with Mark Yates in charge. Yeah. Um, who just got Cheltenham to the playoffs twice and had done a brilliant job. Then he had one season of finishing seventeenth. Is he at Kidderminster Harriers still? He's he... now at Stourbridge. Stourbridge. Yeah, he's just recently appointed at Stourbridge last week. Um, but he he his reign was coming to an end when I took the job, and it was difficult watching him lose his job, having worked so closely with him as a journalist, and, mm. and he did such a good job loads of good good days and good teams that he put together. Then Paul Buckle came in, um, very short, ill ill fated reign. He he didn't he only won one game in about thirteen games and he, he was sacked. Then Russell Milton took over for a bit and then yeah. Gary Johnson came in towards the end of the season. Russell's still at the club, isn't he? Yeah he's number yeah. two now. So it was four managers in the season. The club was dropping out of the football league after sixteen years solid in the football league. So it was difficult from that point of view, but I did think it was a beneficial experience being on the other side of the fence. Yeah. Um so I'm glad I did it. But then, then I went back as sports editor um, just after the club uh, returned to the National League. Yeah. And I moved back onto the journalism side of it. Well, it's like the journalism side of it. It's funny being a lecturer now because, I mean, what do you, because t- I've done sort of guest lecturing. It's hard to tell students yeah. what to do because everything's so fluid, isn't it? I'm quite often teaching in a room where you're on the wall, actually. Oh, really? Picture on <laughs> no, the wall, I know. So. I didn't realise that had been taken, actually, because I did some, um, we did a sort of mock soccer Saturday session with a couple of students, which was really good, actually, sort of morning and afternoon. They're really. Eagle did a fantastic job. I think they were trying to be uh, sort of Phil Thompson and Matt Letizia and stuff. There's some good, good impressions, actually, the guys and they're doing that at, at the University of Gloucestershire in, in Cheltenham. But I always say to them that I think a degree to give you a structure and certainly ethics and things like that is, is paramount, particularly now because ethics are complicated because of, as you said, the online journalism. It's almost like you wanted to attract eyeballs. So yeah. sometimes it can be sensationalist, can't it? Yeah. Even places like the New York Times, which have been you know, fabled as, as kind of bastions of, of impartiality. They're sort of putting things to get people to click through. Yeah. But I always say to them, particularly in broadcast journalism and in writing as well, it's just repetition. It's just doing it, whatever you do, get that core, you know, sort of principles and values of journalism. And the, but then just, it's just like playing sport, isn't it? You have to practice. Yeah, so it's all very practical. There, there is a, some theoretical modules, but on the course team, we've got broadcast specialist Chris Ford, who's, who's done some stuff for Amazon recently, he does the Quest Football League voiceover. He, so he's the broadcast specialist. Yeah. We've got... Um, We've got a theorist who, who will look at the theory behind it, oversee the theoretical modules. My my role is really digital and social media. But yeah. It's very practical based. We've got a rugby specialist 
who's the course leader, Tom Bradshaw, who's, who's experienced. Yeah, I met Tom, yeah. We're all still working as journalists. Brendan McLaughlin's doing stuff yeah. for the Athletic at the moment. It's obviously a new Is he covering project. Villa for them, is he? Or? He's covering West Brom for them at the moment, yeah. yeah. So he's he's an experienced Midlands-based, does stuff for, for the Sun and the Mirror. So mm. I think we've got... Because he, he lives up in... Um, uh, Stratford. Stratford, yeah. 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 So I think we've got a really strong team in terms of covering all the different specialities. But exactly what you said, it's about practising. It's about yeah um, getting out and doing it getting a bit of feedback, improving, learning from your mistakes. And most of our second and third year students are doing regular content, either for clubs or papers or, or organisations. Yeah. Just, just getting... Do you feel, do you feel it's local journalism and journalism, is it under competition from fans sort of tweeting about stuff in the sense of documenting games? And it's it everyone's got access now, haven't they, to yeah. publish, which is, is a huge shift from when we were younger and you had to have all this money to print a paper and so on yeah. and so forth. Anyone can be a journalist with just with an iPhone, can't they? You can mm. take video, take audio, take photos, publish stuff on a, on a blog. So there's a lot more independent, there's a lot more up-and-coming sites that come from nowhere and are getting really good following now. Mm. But I still think that the, the local journalists will be the sort of trusted, hopefully... Do you, do you preach impartiality and balance now? Because there is seems to be like this, with the internet, it's been this wave of opinion journalism, hasn't it? People like Piers Morgan who just... Yeah. sort of hold court and, and captivate people and, and have big followings based upon it and seemingly have pretty good you know success on it I think there's room for opinion pieces but I think in general it's reporter not supporter yeah and you can't write like a fan you've got to understand the fans frustrations and passion for the game and that sort of thing and, and try and reflect that but you can't write as a fan and get too carried away with things get too up and down yeah um, so, so you, go to, you have to adopt a different mindset don't you I think yeah. almost like a doctor where he's consulting someone who's, who's sick or whatever you have to be professional you can't be oh i've lost again and yeah you know sort of almost your emotion infect it infect it yeah you've got to try and ask the questions that the fans want to know the answers to yeah uh, but not yeah i think reporter not re- supporter and it does it, one of my big things is not you know not shouting and screaming and celebrating goals and press boxes because that's i think that's a bit unprofessional we've noticed yeah difficult at the start sort of <laughs> yeah start spasming Stop. when the goal goes in but <laughs> he's just twitched there yeah yeah then you then you you realize that you need to be professional you're there to do a job in a very privileged position, you know, it's it's dream job really. It was the dream job growing up to, yeah. to get paid to watch your you know the team you support. So, but don't uh, become too sensationalist with it. No, how do you see the financial model with journalism? Because it's difficult now, isn't it? Because what we said with those four TV, five TV channels when we were really young, and then you had um, newspapers and, and radio. The advertising money was funneled into just a few mediums and a few few platforms. It's so different now, isn't it? It's it's difficult to to get enough income to fund a big media organisation. Yeah, I think the biggest interesting project at the moment is The Athletic because it's almost like a Netflix-style model for Mm. sports journalism. So they're putting a lot, they've invested a lot of money, they've got a lot of big-name reporters. They're focusing on football at the moment, but in America they they do a wide range of sports, but they've just started here um, this season, and I think it's going well for them. So you subscribe, then you get unlimited access to really in-depth, what they see as high-quality Stuff you can't get anywhere. Also, high quality writing as well, because yeah. I was a big fan of even magazines like Time Magazine, Esquire, National Geographic. There is a quality of writing that sometimes has been lost in the swirl of clickbait and two paragraph bulletins, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what the Athletic are trying to tap into. People who want to invest a bit of time, sit down and actually read an in depth analysis piece. So they've got some tactical experts, they've got financial experts looking at that side of the game, and that they will travel anywhere in the world to get the story. That no one else has got and tell it well and I think if they can pull that off it will almost inject a new lease of life into 
trying yeah. to make money out of sports journalism it's online. Hard, it's hard though for punters, isn't it? Because I know working for Sky, I always get people come up to me and go, oh, my subscriptions this month, there's, there's so much this month. I'm like, I'll just give them a ring and they'll probably get it down. But it's then people say, well, I've got Netflix as well. I've had to have BT Sport and I've got, you know, whatever else it might be or your, your regular bills as well. So it's a hard market to, yeah. to sort of, to, to crack, isn't it? And, and pricing seems to be the key for things like The Athletic. Because for a long time, people have been able to read unlimited content free of charge online yeah and it's quite difficult to then suddenly get them to start paying for it but if the quality is there yeah and that you can't get it anywhere else do you think it's a slow burn then it kind of will kind of develop as people start to look I really hope more in depth i really hope it works for them because it will it will give everybody hope in terms of making money online do they threaten local papers though because they're doing a similar um, well they're, they're similar really thing. focusing on premier league and a bit of championship so there's, mm. there's no there, there'll be no real Chat and Town coverage on the athletic at the no. moment, but they've, they've done they've done a good piece on Michael Duff on it um, earlier this season, which was which I enjoyed, but it was more about the Burnley angle. Oh, okay. But there was some good stuff about Cheltenham in there. I enjoyed reading that, and their, their stuff is good, and they they really have gone for it in terms of they, yeah. They picked off some of the biggest names in regional and national sports journalism. It was it's funny because in the states they did a sports writing module as part of my degree. It was just a bit fun, really. It was an elective, and it was reading all these great books about sports journalists and things. I think one was the boys of summer or something like that it was about covering the Brooklyn Dodgers before they moved out to California and it was a beat journalist on that and the stories you had and he just followed them around the country and there is something romantic isn't there for I think when we were younger about the idea of of being close to a club and telling a story and following it which I suppose the athletic is tapping into but what you've also done with Gloucestershire Live is is being on a beat yeah being being in a privileged position you know getting to go behind the scenes where not many people get to go and then telling the story to the fans and that's 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 the aim really I don't think you can just sit sit back and just do it from a distance because anyone can do that. Mm. I think you've, you've got to make most of the, the privileged position you're in. And something um, like The Athletic, they've hired a lot of guys who were already in local journalism anyway, so they've got those connections because a lot of what I'm sure you're finding out and the, the ability to, to be tapped into it is just time with the club and the repetition of, of knowing it's people, isn't it? It's networking yeah. as well, a lot of it. Not networking in a corny business sense, but in actual just getting to know people. Yes, yeah, you can't be a good journalist without good contacts, without knowing people, without knowing you can pick up the phone to somebody or meet up with somebody and chat to them and get stories and talk and chat through experiences. It's You need a contacts book. And yeah. The, the earlier student journalists start building on that, the better, because <laughs> you can't... You can't just. On have you got Have you got some secret sources at Cheltenham now that no one knows about? I've, well, I think I'm pretty sure I know everyone at the club. You know, yeah. I've, and I've covering them for so long. You just, you know, any anyone that I need to speak to about a certain game that's coming up or a certain incident, I'll, I'll be able to get in touch with them somewhere. So I've been helping out with the former players um, coming back, trying, yeah. trying to get in touch with players from the past, and because I've covered a few different teams obviously through the years. Um, some teams have been really successful. Some have not done quite as well, but. They're all fondly remembered, and I think you, you get to know you know you get to know the groundsmen, you get to know all the board members, you get to know all the medical staff. How, and how tough is life for for because I've you know you listen to the podcast, which I really appreciate, and you've you've been very complimentary about it. But part of that fascination for me is being with lower league footballers and and sort of sportsmen generally, rugby players because they're not as affluent as Premier League footballers. Is that transition into into life afterwards? Because they have to have a second career. How difficult has that been? I suppose following people who are effectively your heroes and life after that. How how sort of interesting as a sort of case study of life has that been I think there's a lot more awareness in, in League 2 footballers now that they need to start preparing for life after the, the game because it's a lot more pre- precarious now there's a lot more oh, do you think it's worse than I, 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 think it's, I think it's more precarious in terms of sh- um, contract lengths are shorter you yeah. know, in League 2 you, you're very like, unlikely to get many three year deals do you think, um, that, do you think that's good because we were talking about Will Boyle weren't we the, um, and I was talking to him he's been there three years at Cheltenham he's the longest serving outfield yeah. player which seems to me that flux, it's hard to build anything. Yeah, it? there's a lot flux. more turnover. So yeah. 
particularly under Gary Johnson, he gets to the end of the season and he see that if, if things haven't gone particularly well, he would just rebuild almost from scratch. Uh, where I think Duff's trying to yeah. keep a bit more stability. But Boyle um, is the sort of player that Cheltenham, you know, he's gold dust for Cheltenham, I think, because he's 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 been at the club a while. He's definitely flourishing under Duff. He's back in the team now and he's captain while Ben Toes is injured. And I think he's out of contract at the end of the season. They need mm. to do all they can to keep him because it, too many players just come and go jump from club to club. Effectively, you begin, you might have a great season, but then effectively you're starting from scratch again next yeah. season, aren't you? Which is kind of exciting, but in a way it's it's frustrating. It's like building a house and knocking it down every, every yeah. summer. It's, it's, you need some continuity, I think. And, but I think there's there's more there's more courses put on by the PFA. There's more people doing, uh, as Will is, a distance learning degree mm. in business and he's doing his coaching badges and there's you you speak to more players now and you see they're doing media courses or yeah. physiotherapy or fitness courses. And I think there's a, there's a lot more guidance from the PFA you know don't get to 35 or even younger if you're bad if you're unlucky and have to retire through injury and, and have nothing mm. to fall back on get some qualifications I mean Michael Duff went to college before he became a professional footballer Shane Duff has got a degree yeah um, so get get some qualifications so when you finish playing you're not just yeah. left sort of helpless and and which happens a lot I think it's in the 90s seen a lot of identity crisis for people if you after they finish yeah. playing yeah, some some just some some just don't prepare, and obviously it's it's quite a well paid job, relatively speaking. But it could be over like that kind of it could mm. be over in in one injury or one manager doesn't doesn't quite fancy yeah. you, and you could be out of a job. It, it can happen in your late well, Shane was late twenties, wasn't it? It can happen. Yeah, twenty nine, I think he, when he's yeah. back, when he got his back injury. But it's it's having that. I think the PFA have a massive role to play in it in educating the players get some of the qualifications, make use of the time you've got because you only train maybe a couple of hours yeah, a day. Yeah, because I always wanted to be a professional footballer. I said I played a bit semi-pro up the road at Malvern Town and I think, could I have done something if I'd really pursued it? And I, I was honest about my sort of lack of ability and lack of cojones sometimes in trials and things like that. But I think, would I have wanted that? Because it's, it, it's a great life. But then speaking to these guys, you realise, yes, you get to kick a ball for life, but it's probably good up until your mid-20s and then when you start to settle down and stuff, it becomes quite stressful in a way, I think. Yeah, I think Cheltenham can be seen as a club where every player will be trying to do what Moisa did came in from a lower level of non-league one good season at Cheltenham yeah. and then he, he moved up to the championship and he's now going to be getting you know good salary yeah. and he, he he's played at Peterborough he's at Peterborough now and doing really well so he used Cheltenham as a springboard and some players will come at Cheltenham and stay a bit longer and maybe later on in their careers but it can be a club where if you make a name for yourself you can get opportunities higher up and obviously then there's it's a bit but I suppose if you, have a, if you do have a plan, like you have a teaching degree or something, that you can just play and enjoy it and then yeah. move on to something else when you finish. So there is a sense of, it doesn't have to be a, a sort of an anxious thing. It can be actually, there is a plan in place, just enjoy it while it's there because ultimately it's every boy's dream and a lot of girls' dreams now to, to play football for a living. Yeah, I, I would say in general, there are more players now than there were maybe 10, 15 years ago that have got a plan, Yeah, that, that know what they're going to do after football. Whereas in the past, I think it was it was more of a, just see what happens and hope for the best. Yeah, you see a lot of boxing as well. Cover boxing because there's the money isn't as great as people would imagine because at the top of the pyramid is is millions, and then even British champ title level can be six thousand pounds or something. You know, yeah. off the back of a camp, it's not a huge amount of money, so they're not <clears throat> necessarily retiring very very affluent. Uh, what do you what do you say to journal, um, journalism students as well? Because it's a tough one, isn't it? Because university now is expensive as well. How do you feel about that? Sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is expensive, but I think it's. A lot of our students are going into really good jobs, so I think it, it's, oh, it's sort of paying off. It's it. There are opportunities there. The course has got a good reputation. I think there are there are jobs out there. So yeah. if all of our students were finishing and, and then going to work as mortgage advisors, then I'd be saying, you know, is it is it worth it? But <laughs> luckily, we've got a good record of. There's we've got 
people working some really good jobs that graduated this time last year or finished this time last year. Yeah. Um, you have to so, come into Sky, don't you, for work experience to get messages from people and things like yeah. that as well, yeah. So the, cl- the course is producing students that are going into the industry, thriving in the industry. So I, I did a journalism degree, um, and I think, although there are arguments to say just start getting work experience and try and work your way in straight out of school or college, I think it's... That's have a framework, isn't it? it? And I think it's also the facilities at the uni, as you know, are very, yeah. very the top quality, and, and being away from home and making a whole new bunch of friends that you you'll probably be friends with for life. Yeah. I think it's an important part of uh, the young person's development. Obviously, I'm not saying everyone should go to uni, but I think it's... Uh, it's difficult when you're, you're 18 and 19 as well, because my undergraduate was at Loughborough was English literature and sports science, and I went to do my journalism conversion in the States, and then did a couple of courses when I came back and different things to do legal training for the UK legal system. But I think by that time, I was 21, 22, I almost had a more of appreciation of education and an element of that. When you're 18, 19, it's difficult, isn't it? You've got less... feel like that's a long way away, your career... And it's using, you said, those facilities. It's just getting in there and, and getting the reps in. It's like, you know, it's kind of doing shuttles to become a footballer or yeah. whatever it is. It's just putting those those hours in when you have the opportunity to, but there's loads of distractions because people want you to go out and go down to Weatherspoons or whatever, yeah, whatever the just, local Cheltenham attraction is. It's so competitive, but I've, I've been teaching on the course for a year and three quarters now, and there's, there's, there is a real motivation there. that They realise you can't coast through and just tick the boxes and end up with a degree. You need to put in the extra work, those extra reps. Yeah, getting yourself into organisations like Sky, building up as many contacts as you can, getting as much work experience as you can. Those are the students that will go into the really good job straight after uni, yeah. rather than just just cruising through and you know doing the bare minimum just to get the degree. You need to put the effort in outside of the classroom time as well. Yeah, I think it's, it is still very competitive industry, but there are some really good jobs out there at the moment. Hugely important to me is was the local BBC actually BBC Hereford and Worcester, BBC London. I did loads of experience BBC Three Counties based in Luton as well. And they've got loads of broadcast experience there on radio and lots of opportunities. So I wonder. I always look at the BBC and wonder, because I'm a, a great user of the BBC. Still, for journalism, it's great for information and things like that. And the website's great. But that's partly because it's not on that advertising model. Do you worry about the funding for the, the BBC and, I suppose, opportunities for journalists as well? I'm, I'm very pro-BBC. Yeah. I think it's absolutely vital. I really wouldn't want to see it go. And I think it's, yeah, I've, I've grown up. Boils down to about £3 a week, doesn't it, or something yeah. like that? I, I less. think it's, yeah, I'm massively in favour of keeping it and, and protecting it. And mm. it's just a huge, it, it is the place to go for trusted, impartial quality. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of other good quality out there, but I, I, I like you, I, I rely heavily on the BBC. And I, I'm, but I do worry about it and it's going to come through some testing times. It's complex because local commercial radio would say they're at unfair advantage because their funding for local BBC radio and services is disproportionate to, I suppose, the patch and the income yeah. that they would get through advertising. So you can see both sides, but yeah. I think it is important to have a service that's also divorced from that pressure advertising as well to a certain yeah. extent, isn't it? Because that suddenly influences what you do and the corners you cut. I can see the arguments against it and I can you know, see why people who are just enjoying on-demand services like Netflix and Amazon Prime think, why, why have I got to pay this TV mm. licence? But I think, personally, I think it's a lot more good than bad. Yeah, see. I think you get a lot of quality for what you pay as well in terms of the volume of, of content, if you know, the modern words content, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And I think it's a consistently high standard across the board, whether it's radio, TV, online, all different types of broadcasting. I think it's. Do you think Do you think things will swing back towards sort of authentic, regular types of journalism as well? Because we have seen, particularly the national broadcasters, haven't we? The Daily Mail website's gone extremely successful, biggest website in the world because of sensational headlines that people click on on social media and things like that. Do you think? What do you say to your students? Are they aware of? sensationalism and, and how to approach it because you are trying to promote yourself now aren't you in a set or promote the work but it's that balance between 
not writing something ridiculous like Cheltenham Town player caught drunk at two in the morning. It actually <laughs> turns out he was just, you know, yeah. walking his mum home at two in the morning or something. Exactly. I think there's a, the word clickbait gets used a lot and I think there's a, there's a, there's a line between what's an intriguing headline to try and get people to read your article, which is exactly what you should be doing. Yeah. And then there's a headline which is misleading and doesn't give you what the article, like that, that example used, <laughs> doesn't give you what you're expecting. That's that's what you've got to avoid. So it's it, it's very easy to, to lose readers by by not giving them what you're sort of promising them in the headline. But if you if you produce consistently good content and you're you're honest, you're accurate, you're reliable, then you will build a Law following, and then that's what. So that's why social media is so important. I think some heavy posts have just landed in. <laughs> Sounds like it was the old broadsheet <laughs> newspaper come through there, but I'm not sure uh, what that was. Might be a delivery for my wife. Um, but um, do, yeah, because it's that that tone is is right as well, isn't it? I just uh, it's just interesting how it how it develops because everyone's clamoring for attention. But how have you found social media as well? Because you're on Twitter, you're documenting. Do you get into any intense debates with fans, or do you try and leave it? I do. I do try and interact with fans on Twitter, but I've, I've, tw- Twitter has been a hugely positive thing for for my job. Yeah. Since I think I set up my account in about twenty ten. It's good for news, isn't it, Twitter? Because I think people can use it. That it's a good way to engage with Twitter rather yeah. than necessarily debating stuff on there, which seems to get a bit ferocious. Yeah. I, I don't think and and anything's ever got too silly. I think it's pretty healthy debate, but people will always want to have an opinion, and you know. It's, I think it's absolutely brilliant tool of all of all the social media channels for, from from my point of view as a sports journalist. Twitter's yeah. been Twitter's been the one. Well, because I because I grew up partly in Malvern and I've always kept an eye out for local clubs. I've always kept an eye on Cheltenham, particularly since I moved there. You've been great at plugging me in for for people with the podcast, but also on a Saturday if I'm at Sky or anywhere else, I'll just look at your Twitter feed just to see a kind of updates. You've got BBC updates, but it's quite nice to get that sort of bespoke aspect to it. And also, there's pictures and things like that. You see Mike, Michael Duff, end of the match, shaking hands yep. and all that kind of stuff. So it's quite nice. It gives you, a, gives you an element of being there, doesn't it? And I think people just have to learn, and we're aware of it being journalists, I suppose, because we're told at work, this is publishing, this is like writing a paper. Yeah. You can't just write outlandish, savage opinion or whatever it yeah. is on there. But I think people, maybe regular members of public, don't quite get, they don't equate the two, but it's actually the same thing as going on the local news and, and saying some yeah. sort of heinous thing that's why it's quite dangerous for some players isn't it yeah because um, within within you know one one lapse or one angry moment you can you can really cause a lot of problems so yeah I, I know michael duff is very anti players using social media for that reason probably and i think the higher you go up you know premier league players it's very vanilla isn't get the it? road paper. road you get the road rage effect don't you yeah so you you they have to be very careful but yeah i think in terms of my coverage on twitter i try to be balanced fair but Seems often, pretty, often fa- pretty factual for the most part, don't you? In yeah, terms of, I, I don't try and get too, too carried away with anything, but try and try and offer something reliable and, and just keep adding to, the, the following that I've got and, and try yeah. and get as many Cheltenham fans as I can following me. Because I suppose in written journalism as well, you do offer. I suppose radio reporters do as well, a sort of qualitative assessment, don't you? So you'll give you the facts, Cheltenham will draw nil nil, and then in that report there is an implication of whether they've played well or not. But then yeah. I suppose that, the argument is you can then back that up with the statistics and say. They had eight, sh- eight shots on target, so they were unlucky, etc., etc. Yeah, I, I write a piece on a Sunday morning every get every game, which is obviously by then everyone will know what happened in the game. So it's try it's trying to analyse what went right, what went wrong, mm. just give an overall feel of, of how the game went and, and look ahead to, to the week ahead. So that's quite an, that's always the best read piece of the weekend is the is the Sunday piece, uh, the verdict piece on you know the sort of an analytical piece rather than just this happened in this minute. This happened in that minute, which by the time you get to <laughs> six o'clock on a Saturday, everyone will have seen the. So that's but you're, you're veering into a little bit of opinion there, where people might have 
difference of opinion. So I suppose do you get yeah. more comeback from that as well as the if there attention? is a, if it does get a bit of reaction, that's a good thing. So you know, yeah. Every, you could watch the game with 10 people and they'd all have complete different views on the game. But I just, yeah. I, I'm very aware that's just my take on the game and not everyone's going to agree. But people respect your opinion because you've been there for so long, I suppose, as well. That's the hopefully. Thing. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. But I still, I still think, I, I'm sure Michael Duffery, if he reads any of the stuff that I write, probably thinks, what's he on about? But <laughs> try, try and tell it how I see it. So, and I think I've, generally people will say, you know, that's the game that I saw. Yeah, hopefully. That's no, <laughs> great. So do you think, um, where, where are your local, what your students mainly, they're going into different spheres or are they trying to combine broadcast and written? Because there was, was an argument that sort of 10, I remember when I first came out, it was like you had to be a video journalist where you had to be a reporter, a presenter and do all the, it's almost like it's, maybe it's gone back from that a little bit where people find specialist niches that suit their talents, yeah. whether it's writing or presenting or reporting or radio, TV, written stuff. Do I think, when when you finish the three year course here at UOG, you you will be able to do a bit of everything. But yeah. obviously, people will have this. Some people are much more interested in broadcasting. One thing I do know: if you want to go and work for a, a local paper company such as Reach, yeah, which, who, who own Gloucester Live, you, you need to be able to do a bit of everything anyway. Yes. So you won't just be writing; you'll be doing podcasts, you'll be doing video content. But that obviously, if if you we've we've got some students that really want to be commentators, we've got some students that really want to be broadcasters, radio presenters. You, you've um, got a podcast as well, haven't you? You do. Yeah, right? I, I used to do one weekly, which is sort of bit on a bit of a hiatus at the moment because I used to do it with Richard Joyce, yeah. who's now working for the club. Uh, okay. So before he worked at the club, we we had a Chatham Town and a, and a local football. So Joycey, is it? Joycey, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know his real name. Yeah, yeah Richard so Joyce. Yeah, Joycey. So because yeah. he cause he's working full time at the club as media manager now, we and we it was difficult for him to be able to really. And he went from Forest Green, so that was a yeah, he's, big he's big move. Both the clubs it? in the county, yeah. And he's but he, he's he's also done some work with some of the Gloucester non-league clubs and he, he's really knowledgeable about Gloucester football. So we, yeah. we have, we did a team of the year at the end of 2019, non-league team of the year and that was quite well received and we're just discussing ideas at the moment trying to bring something back. That... Because the Cheltenham Town podcast, presumably like I said, there's a committed audience would do would do well. Like I know even the Cheltenham Town ones here do really well. Michael Duff did, did really well in particular that people were curious to see what he was like. And I think that format is, if people enjoy that, it's interesting with the media now, we've got so many options haven't we? We've got the two two paragraph story, we've got the 30 second video but then we have people like Joe Rogan doing three hour podcasts and yeah. people listening in their droves yeah I think Duff would have, would have probably had a bigger but he's, he's a legend at Burnley as well isn't he so yes probably, yeah like, I think Burnley fans caught onto it as well yeah but yeah podcast is as, as we've discussed earlier it, it boomed then it sort of disappeared a, a little bit now it's it's huge again and have it, there's definitely an appetite for it when we when we did one weekly and we, we got some really good good numbers sort of thing that would do well like say someone knowledgeable like you is independent because I think sometimes when it comes from the club like say maybe there's that sense of a state broadcaster to it yeah. I think people are a bit suspicious of that sometimes yeah. I think general fans would rather hear from um, people outside the club than although the, the club could get access maybe and, and behind the scenes that maybe journalists couldn't get um, I think generally people would rather hear yeah. from a, a neutral now, I'm mindful you've got a lecture coming up, but which is finally, what's your, your take on, on Chatham Town and where it can go? Because people around here are always quite circumspect and say, oh, it can only be a League Two because of the fan base. But then you know that it's come from non-league, so it has grown in the past. Do you think it yeah. can slowly evolve and grow? Yeah. I think being in League Two in 2020 is, is still a great achievement. Yeah. So Cheltenham's medium's long-term aim should be to build a new main stand. That's what I think they need to be looking at. That will allow them to bring in income during the week rather than just having a, an empty shell Okay. For, for most of the two week period so you know the old main stand where the press box is yeah. that's been there since the early 60s they need to replace that and build a you know, modern structure with facilities or accommodation or you know, commercial I think oh really that's, that's, I think that's one of the big things they need to do well, to rent out like office space and yeah office space gym, Airbnb, Airbnb student accommodation 
anything like that. I think they, wow. they need to get some more income in on modern match days. So that's one of the things I think they need to do to secure the long-term future. But in terms of on the pitch, just to be anywhere near the top of League 2, in terms of budget um, yeah. and where Cheltenham were at the start of last season, where it looked like they were going out of the division in the other direction before Duff came in and sort of turned it around, I think it's hopefully they can go all the way. But it's... For, for, it's growing that fan base as well. Yeah, so gradually, gradually trying to get more people to come back. And I think Duff has helped with that as well. I think cr- crowds are creeping up gradually yeah. and gone over, over 3,000 again. So trying to build a more regular fan base, trying to get the new stand built. If they can get into League One, it'll be, it'll be fun trying to stay in there. But it will, <laughs> it will be a struggle because of the size of the clubs that are in there. But with Duff, I, f- I feel like he can, he can manage any character, any player that comes in. I think he, he knows how to handle different characters. I think his man management is excellent. And I think he'd relish the challenge of taking on the likes of you know Sunderland, Ipswich, yeah. and some of the big. No, clubs. I think he would, yeah. And I think he's it's interesting he's committed to this area, whatever comes in, in terms of his professional career. So it's good to good to have him around. John, it's brilliant to have you here. What's your Twitter handle again? Just it's John Palmer Sport. John Palmer Sport, and it's is that's another aspect of it's an insight now that we wouldn't have had in previous generations into the life of almost a beat reporter because you see where you are every day. And yeah. has, has that been stressful? Like working every weekend? Is that? Personally, with family and friends, because what I said there is a downside of it is, is, is the impact on family and friends working in sports journalism, but also not being able to play as much sport when you're, when you're younger. Yeah, had to knock that on the head a long time ago, but in terms of working every weekend, I think it's just, it's just part of my routine now. I wouldn't know what to do with myself on a Saturday if I wasn't no. a, a football game. So when I left full-time sports editor's role to go to the uni, one of the big draws was that they actively encouraged you to carry on working in the industry. So I, I, there's nowhere else I'd rather be on a Saturday than... Are you in the online. world of Instagram yet, or not? not self sees every game. No, no it's, it's difficult, one, isn't it? I find that even though I work on TV, a bit vainglorious. It's hard to work out. Not on Instagram, user, but mainly Twitter for me. But yeah, Sundays Worst I have a bit of downtime. Uh, but Saturdays I, I will always be at a game and hopefully uh, reporting on them for years to come. Good man. We well, appreciate it. I know all the Cheltenham Town fans do as well. John Palmer there, guys. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, great to speak to him. And uh, check out Bang and Olufsen of Cheltenham, Jason and the guys, if you have any audio requirements or entertainment systems, whatever it may be, please, if you like the podcast as well, love it if you could like it on iTunes. I'm Ed Draper 81 on social media and uh, we'll speak to you very soon. Cheers.